Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. en los diferentes estados. arrived at our destination but i have to tell you about that song did you recognize it it's from one of the movies we're going to watch it's called give back the sun this is the victor records version by kiko mari and Richiro minaj and that is from the soundtrack of godzilla versus hetera or godzilla versus the smog monster yeah that's a that's a very trippy early 70s funky tune that just kind of gets you in the mood for, for the, all the fun that we're going to have tonight at the drive-in. Yeah, just don't listen to the words, but good thing. That was the Japanese version, so we couldn't understand them anyway. Yeah, yeah. as we will, I'm sure, cover kind of a depressing little song when you really hear the words. It's definitely a little dark. The beat is really yeah. upbeat. Tell everyone where we are. Well, we are in the late summer of 1972, specifically tonight. We have traveled back to Saturday, July 22nd, and we are at the Smyrna Drive-In in in Smyrna, Georgia. This drive-in's had some different names over the years, but we are going to be checking out a great, well, two of the four films they have planned tonight. We're going to be checking out Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster and The Thing with Two Heads. It's going to be the most unique double feature we've ever covered here on the show. The other two films, actually, we're going to head home after that because we've seen those actually a couple of years ago at another drive-in, Yogg, Monster from Space, and Destroy All Monsters. Uh, I think that was a couple of years ago, the first summer at the drive-in. What history do you have about this place? What do you know about the Smyrna drive-in or Smyrna itself? So it opened up uh, at some point prior to 1955. This was kind of a little harder to find some stuff on this drive-in. You know, sometimes there's a lot of documented info. Sometimes, yeah, you have to do a little digging. And and this one, not a lot of pictures exist, not a lot of info. We know that it opened prior to 1955 as the Fair Oaks drive-in. And it was uh, operated by Martin Theaters of Georgia. It's located in Smyrna, but it's sometimes listed as being in Marietta, Georgia, suburb of Atlanta. In 1963, it was remodeled and renamed the Smyrna Drive-In. At least it continued to operate through the 1970s as the Smyrna Drive-In. It was a single screen theater 
located off of Atlanta Road. Uh, it was about uh, a little, about I guess about a half a mile north of the Belmont Hills Shopping Center. And it was close to Lockheed. So we might hear the roar of a jet engine tonight. I was going to say if we're, we're lucky, but no, if we're <laughs> not lucky, we'll hear the jet engine. And they did show a lot of monster movies at this theater. That was kind of their typical drive-in fare around this time period. All this information I should give credit to is coming from cinematreasures.org, which is the wonderful website that lets us know about great movie theaters of the past. So apparently this uh, location, this drive-in, was the starting point of the Smyrna Little League Parade, uh, the start of every baseball season. They started the drive-in and worked their way down. So I did some searching to see what, you know, what happened to this theater. I don't know when it closed, but it was bulldozed in 1983. So it is long since gone. I did do some Google Earth research. And unfortunately, I can see where, you know, take there's an aerial photo from the early 1970s on Cinema Treasures. So I could see the roads and then compared it to the modern day image from Google Earth and I could see where the theater would have been located. And it's actually the Smyrna City Works is located there now. So unfortunately, nothing resembling a drive-in. And the area is was fairly, uh, at the time, it didn't look like it was well populated, but it's been really changed dramatically. Some of the roads and stuff have changed. Unfortunately, nothing remains today of the uh, Smyrna drive-in not even the usual line of trees or anything. It's all very, very different. But in 1972, it was still the place to be if you're in Smyrna, Georgia, which is where we are tonight. And I think we're going to have a fun time here at the drive-in. Yes. And do you know what else happened in Smyrna, Georgia, what it's known for? I don't know. Well, you do, because I told you, but I asked if I could announce it. So <laughs> anyway, Go ahead. Uh, Julia Roberts was born in Smyrna, Georgia in 1967. So at the young age of five, she might be here at the drive-in tonight. Yeah, we, we might, we might... freaky. It's like, can I have your autograph? Why? Well, it's going to be worth something someday. <laughs> See, that would, then you're doing the whole, we're already, you know, messing Taking with the timey yeah. thing. We got to be careful and not step on any butterflies. So if you talk to Julia Roberts and tell her she's going to have a career, it might go to her head. And then we never get pretty woman. Oh. And then the world is vastly changed and different. We might head back to 2022 and somehow the world is entirely changed. That's a whole other science fiction movie, but it always happens. No autographs from Julia Roberts tonight. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. We've got a few minutes before it starts. Let's check out any old business we have. Sadly, we don't have any feedback. However, that might be good because we have a ton, eight new members to the Facebook group page. So it's going to take a while for us to list those names. As you all may or may not know, we have a Facebook group page, the Classic Horse Club Podcast. It's just a little community related to the podcast, and we can talk about the movies, make announcements, whatever. It's a, our social gathering place in the Absolutely. Internet. So, Rich, start us off. Who do we have as new members? All right. We want to welcome Hubert Camargo, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. Welcome to the club. Doug Frank, and I do want to say that I know Doug has been a member before. Uh, I don't know 
if he left and came back or what, but he's showing up as a new member. So welcome back. Welcome to Jerry Guy. Jeff Black. Larry Gebert. And again, I hope I pronounced that correctly. David Powell. And the last one, we should have like a drum roll or something, because this is our, as of right now, our 200th member of our Facebook page. Frederick Cooper, he is a an amazing artist. Our good friend Sam Irvin hyped him up a few years back when he did a, uh, I think it was a Kickstarter for a book, uh, The Monster Art of Frederick Cooper. Go to his page, go to his website, check it out. Amazing work, ladies and gentlemen. And he's got a new book out. That first book, if you didn't get it, tough luck, it's sold out. He's got a new one now called The Monster Sketch Art. Uh, Frederick Cooper. So it's all black and white sketches and it's amazing stuff. You know, I don't know much about that artist when I go to his website and look, I recognize some, but it's, it's like, if I don't know how old he is, but he's like me, if I were an artist, because the subjects, you know, there's hammer, there's universal planet of the apes, dark shadows. I mean, it's like art that has sprung. Those were the things I would draw or paint if I could draw or paint. We probably need to take it back a second because we're already welcoming new members and we haven't even introduced ourselves. Who are we? Who are you, sir? Yeah. Well, those of you who don't know, and we just assume you've always been with us, first of all, welcome if this is your first time. But I'm Jeff Owens. I have a blog called Classic Horrors Club and a couple other blogs. I'm Richard Chamberlain, and uh, I've got just one blog these days, but you know, we're coming up on our big 10th anniversary. I'm from monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We are in our fifth year. We celebrated our fifth anniversary back in January. So if you are new to the club, and obviously we are still having new members, this is our third summer at the drive-in. Yeah. And at the end of the episode, we always end telling what's going on with each of our blogs and our other efforts. So you'll hear that at the end if you want to know more about us. And Richard, although we didn't have feedback, we should tell people how they can leave feedback. The way that I personally like the best, I don't know about you, but is a voicemail. And we have a line that facilitates that, a phone number, 616-649-2582. And you're saying, oh, that's a lot of numbers I can't remember. Well, we have a little something to help you remember. And it's also 616-649-CLUB. All right. I challenge you to forget that. So uh, do that or send us an email. Classichorrorsclub.club at gmail.com. And the Facebook group page, all kinds of ways to get a hold of us. And we would love for you to do that because we would include it in the podcast. And the more the merrier, as they say. Well, it looks like the sun is down enough that they're going to fire up that projector. Anything before we settle in and get ready? Uh, well, I don't know. I, I'm kind of hungry. I think I might do a pre-movie jaunt over mm. to the to the snack bar. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like, I don't know, a hot cup of coffee on this <laughs> cold July night. No, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of feeling like what would, what would be the popular candy of 1972? You know, if I've got my teeth from 1972, <laughs> I think I might go with some uh, sugar babies because mm. I used to eat the heck out of those in the seventies. Not something that I should be doing now in my mid fifties. I don't know. I just might go kind of with some chocolate. All right. I don't think I'll have anything now. I will between movies, but uh, I am a little parched. So just bring me like a small Dr. Pepper or something. That sounds good. 
Welcome to your favorite drive-in theater and a sparkling new season. Watch our screen and local newspapers for all the fine shows coming this way. Show after show will feature the latest hits, the biggest stars for fun-filled, pleasure-packed evenings. Relax, come as you are, and spend an enjoyable night out with the entire family. No parking problems, no babysitting problems. And there are always tasty snacks at our modern refreshment stand. Thanks, folks. And once again, welcome back. Just five minutes before showtime. I'm sorry, sir. This is a private mountain. But I only wanted this it. mountain is reserved for patrons of drive-in theaters. But but but, but it's I... a supply depot for all sorts of good things, which people can get at the snack bar. Like soft drinks, hot dogs, good hot coffee, candy bars of all kinds, delicious popcorn, and refreshing ice cream treats. But I am a patron of this drive-in. Well, why didn't you say so? Be our guest. More than 1,600 dead have been reported, while other casualties are expected to exceed 30,000. The main storage tank of the Japan Oil Company has exploded. Nothing man can do can stop the smog monster. Can Godzilla save the Earth from this mastodon of destruction? Hey, Jeff, I'm back from the concession stand. Brought our good friend, Jonathan. Looks like he time-traveled back to 1972 as well. We had to know it was a Godzilla movie, right? I mean... Should have known. Should have known. Jonathan, how are you? Good, good. Well, you know, I just wanted to time-travel, get away, keep a low profile. I come to the drive-in, and I run into you guys again. Like, I just... How does this happen? But I guess it is a Kaiju movie, so I guess the chances were good. Yeah. What what did you get at the concession stand? What's your favorite treat? I got some chuckles because it's the only place I can find them, which are great. They actually have fairly dis- decent pizza, at least for this part of the country. Hmm. You know, I'm a New Yorker, so you know we're pretty snobby about pizza, but actually they're pretty good pizza. I have to say, very surprising. And did uh, you get maybe- one of those steaming, piping hot cups of coffee? To go <laughs> oh <with>? yes, <laughs> they love promoting that. Co- yeah, they're very, very proud of their coffee. Yeah, yeah, they're decent. They're decent. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you are here because you're our resident kaiju Godzilla Gamera expert, uh, and you 
You mentioned bringing chuckles. This is going to be a horrible transition, but this movie gave me a lot of chuckles. What do you think about uh, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster or Godzilla versus Hedera? How does it? Well, first, Jonathan, tell us how it fits in with the other Godzilla movies. And then just how do you like it in comparison to some of the others? Well, it's definitely past what a lot of you hear a lot of kaiju fans, uh, giant monster movie fans called the golden age of of Toho and Kaiju fans, so that would be the 1960s, probably particularly like that early to mid 1960s period. Uh, but this is this is a whole different ball game, you know. Toho didn't have their stable of contract players, and they were getting into kind of uncharted territory with some some of their creative. But it's definitely an experimental phase. I think that comes across very quickly, and the way it fits in with other Godzilla movies, it really doesn't in a lot of ways, even though it's very much a Godzilla movie. And if you're someone that loves, you know, you have kaiju fans that complain in certain films like Monster Zero, which, which is one of my favorites, has very little monster action, which is true. It's a, it's a fair criticism. But if you like monster action, this movie, it gives it to you. Like there are these, you have your rolling that like, you know, usually in a typical formula for a kaiju film, you have like an initial fight that is very brief and then maybe a climactic battle. These guys are going at it for pretty much the entire film. And, you know, I do appreciate that. But yeah, yeah I made a note that this is the one Showa era Godzilla movie that has the most screen time for Godzilla. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's accurate. And yeah, like I made a note at like, I think 20 minutes in there already was a fight. And then at the end, there's like a double fight. You think he's over and done with and then comes back to life and there's another fight. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's probably the first movie where Godzilla is really, uh, his character is really up against it. Like he is, he's getting it from all sides in all different ways. And, you know, he has a, an opponent that is completely like evolving. Budgets were much lower, you know, starting in the 70s, probably late starting with uh, 69 with All Monsters Attack. But definitely, so you could, obviously budgets were, you know, were much lower than they were in the heyday. And but I don't know. I think with lower budgets and with new creative people involved, at least some creative folks, like you get really interesting things. It's kind of the same way. I kind of feel like like Hammer and Toho were kind of on similar trajectories when it came to like their heyday. Both kind of their genre content really like took off in the mid 50s and then into the mid 70s, really, is when Hammer also kind of closed shop when it came to, the, you know, the genre stuff. And, and same thing with Toho, but they both put out really just experimented. I mean, you got things like Captain Kronos from Hammer and Seven Golden Vampires that obviously you got from Hammer and a bunch of others. And you get Smog Monster, you know, some of the others, Mechagodzilla and um, Megalon, we can talk about another time. I know that's an often derided film, but, you know, I really enjoy it. But yeah, it's just very different. When I used to watch this film, it was featured prominently on creature feature marathons back in our local uh, WR TV, Channel 9, Channel 11 in the New York, New Jersey area. And this one played prominently. And even back then, you always knew once it was, you knew it was going to be a Godzilla this month, you're in for something very, the tone is just not like any other Godzilla movie. The music, the, the imagery, uh, the messaging, you know, with the exception of maybe the original Godzilla, were all just really different. And the score is weird. Everything is just weird, but it all pretty much works for me. I, I think you know, considering what they had, it really, it really works for me. So yeah, it's unique. It's unique, and it's still. I think it's still the probably the most unique Godzilla. I know some people might say Shin Godzilla as well. Some folks don't like it. Smog Monster. They think it's too different, or it doesn't fit the Godzilla aesthetic. But to me, there is no one Godzilla. We're way past the point where there's 
there can only be one type of Godzilla. We've gone through, what are we, 35 films in, 30 films, something like that. So kind of like with some of the other properties, you know, famous properties that have been around a long time. When it gets to a certain point where you can't really, there's not one mold. The tone in this one is sort of all over the place, but in general, would you yeah. consider this like one of the children's Godzilla? Would you consider it made for it, children? It's so interesting because it's got like all that, you know, it's got the dark imagery. It even borders on horror. And Hedra is actually kind of a scary monster, which you don't really see. You know, he comes up in that first scene and those red eyes are poking out of the water. And poor Ken is watching the TV and he drops his food. He's like, what, you know, what is this? It's really dark, as you guys, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but it's super dark, pretty violent. And you see a lot of fatalities and casualties, which is not typical in a Godzilla movie, at least not that. Maybe the villain gets it. A few human villain gets it in some of the other films, but not like this. So it's dark. And in some ways it's not kid friendly at all. But then at the same time, Godzilla has never been more anthropomorphic. And I love it. He's trying to reason things out. And he's like, he's spending time with, you know, Hedera and they're just sizing each other up and he turns his head he's like what what am i supposed to do with this and he's got like that's interesting you say that because in general in a godzilla he'll do something with his arms or something that's try to anthropomorphic like you said but in this one uh you could like really sense his frustration when he was battling whatever he did with his arms i don't you know i don't know what it was exactly and then at the very end when it's all over and done with and he's standing in the distance staring at the crowd and they like take a step back. Yes. But yep. I mean, this is a guy in a rubber suit standing in a distance. I got such a feeling of his character. Like he's like judging them, like shame on yep. you. Yep. He's like maybe deciding, should he just blow them with his breath or should he go away? You know, and yep. he's just standing there. There's no movement or anything, but I just got that heavy sense of it. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this scene right Soon before that, when the electrodes aren't working again, that gets caught. There's some comedy in there. It's like, can you guys do anything? You know, the military guys are not, you know, they don't really blew a fuse or something. And so it stops working again. And Godzilla just shakes his head for like half a second and just like, all right, I'll let me get this going. And um, yeah, so I appreciate that. He he does the thing where, you know, I think Ken has this, you know, they've done this in some of the camera like films, especially the 90s camera films. And a few other kaijus where the kids seem to have some kind of like psychic connection yep. to Godzilla. And he knows his signature. He does that thing with his mouth, you know, he like rubs his uh, nose and that's really cool. So that kind of makes it kid friendly somewhat, but it definitely straddles. I mean, there's some horrific things and some fun things and some, as you guys know, should we just talk about the wackadoo, you know, flying scene at the end. But I feel like when I used to watch that film when I was a kid and I was, it impacted me. I was like, this is intense. So I have to say, when they start playing that Godzilla fanfare music, you know, his like rallying brassy theme, and he starts flying, you almost needed that because the movie's pretty dark. So you needed something fun and light at the end there. I felt like that uh, towards the end there. So I always appreciate it, but I know that's a very divisive moment in Godzilla lore, you know, him flying with his tail between his legs to catch up to Hedera. So... It could go either way, but if I was a little, like if I had Stella, I don't know if I'd have Stella watching this, some of those images, pretty intense and pretty uh, disturbing, (laughs) but it was the time. And honestly, that's how people, you know, post-industrial, not post-industrial, after the war, you know, Japan was just, was wrecked environmentally, Uh, the air, the water, you know, they had that boom, that economic boom, but it was at a cost because they rode on, you know, fossil fuels and, and who knows what other 
pollutants were entering, you know, the air. And it was apparently it was that bad. Because it hit its peak, I think, in the 60s and 70s. That's something that uh, Bono, yeah, the director, really wanted to, you know, drill down on. And it was a year after the first Earth Day, first and foremost, in everyone's minds. But we're, we're, I feel like we're still there. You know, I just read a report about the air quality in not just the United States, around the world. There's some pretty dark pockets still, uh, you know, particulate matter and things. Sorry, I didn't mean to get into the whole thing. So it's heavy stuff. And it's... Uh, well, the anti-pollution message, that was really big in the 70s. I, I mean, yeah. I, I remember the commercial that always played, right, of the Indian yep. and the deer. Yep. Uh, I mean, that was yep. just iconic. Woodsy Owl and don't, you know, give a hoot, don't pollute. Don't pollute, yeah. I mean, because you rem- I remember back in the 70s, I mean, people would just throw trash outside their car. And it was a big deal to like, no, here's a banks giving away like little free trash bags to put mm-hmm. trash in your car. There was that big push to take care <laughs> of, of the planet because we're just crapping on it, essentially. Right. By the time you get to the 80s, there were laws in place and things I think were starting to turn around. But yeah, this time period, 1972, wasn't just an isolated thing in Japan. It was all over the world. And I think, you know, unfortunately, like you said, there's still pockets today that, well, when the pandemic hit, right? I mean, they were showing cities like Delhi, the cities over in in Asia, for example, is like, Mm -hmm. and like California, it's like, yeah, yeah. Nobody on the roads, and look at that. There's a blue sky. There's there, yeah. there's there's clean yeah. air. There was some yeah. benefits from keeping us at home and not getting out and, and polluting. There was some right. pros, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Jonathan, you mentioned Gamera, and that was a note I wanted to ask you about. And of course, you know the history of Gamera better than I also. But recently, the last couple of years, I've really I know, kind I of got up to see. This reminds yeah, me a lot of Gamera. And I wonder, do you think there's any influence? I mean, oh yeah, obviously from like the flying disc version of, Her- of Hedera, but even to the end with the little boy waving, bye Godzilla. Bye. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, th- I feel like Toho was kind of searching for... You know, had to revive there when it was decided, okay, we're going to after destroy all monsters. That was supposed to be the end, but they said, okay, let's pick this up again. But I think they were, you know, they were definitely knew what was going on and taking a look around. And, you know, that, that formula with the camera films and you had these kids, you know, either one kid or is a series of kids, you know, plucky, you know, wanting to be part of the solution. And sometimes, like I said, with a connection to the monster. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's any question that Toho knew what was going on and died. And that formula really worked for them. You know, I mean, they were the upstarts in the Kaiju genre. But by this point, they were, well, they were, I guess they were winding down at this point. But yeah, they knew that formula. And I think it was definitely intentional to include a, a Kenny, a Ken. And his name, his character, his name is Ken. But that yeah. became the shorthand for, you know, the short shorts and the, <laughs> uh, and all that. And he would appear the same actor. I was forgetting his name. He played Ken. Uriyoki Kawase, I believe. Yeah, Ken. yeah, that's yeah. it. And he would play him again. Not, well, he wouldn't play that same character, but he would be in Godzilla vs. Megalon a few years older. Yeah, which is pretty cool. But yeah, no, no, I think absolutely that uh, they knew what was going on, knew that formula worked. Well, All Monsters Attack, which I think was what, how many years before this? Or I'm trying yeah, to. Yeah, like a year or two, like a couple yeah. of years. I mean, that yeah. was definitely, definitely geared towards that Gamera Kid audience. Yeah. That's my yeah. least favorite of, of the classic Godzilla. Yeah. I struggle with that one. It's, uh, you know, I used to watch it because I used to love it. Mainly because I wish I wish I could have been 
his character because I was kind of a latchkey kid. He would go home and he'd hook hook himself up and go to Monster Island. I'd love to imagine that that place. Oh, actually that'd be cool. Yeah, I awesome. do that now. You know why not? Right. Yeah. Exactly. 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 But I know it's a lot. Of, it's like a kind of like a clip show. Except, of course, you have Nina, you know, Godzilla's son, who's always... Oh, speaking of which, I didn't show you guys one of my Father's Day gifts here. Oh, right. World's Best. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. It just seems good timing. So I figured, you know, I got to wear it to the drive-in, obviously. Yeah. So, so we're looking was- at a... It says World's Best Dad, and it has a picture of Godzilla and his son. Son and Godzilla. Yep. And I don't know. That's- I don't know if I'm the World's Best Dad, but, you know... I'll oh, sure. well... But, you know, I guess Richard's a dad too, but you're both right up there. Well, oh, I am too. We're all great dads. <laughs> yeah, that's true. What am I saying? Yeah, yes. So oh, I'll show dad. you what I have. Also, I have a little yes. hetera. Oh, this was one God. of those blind boxes, you know. And I'm like, yes. I just got to get one. And I was really glad that I got hetera. It, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, he's pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, that's actually a good figure. Uh, how do you guys feel about hetera? Like the the design, the the well, the design's plural, first of all, and the yeah. monster itself. And Very unique. How do you guys feel about it? Yeah, I Very love unique. it, and it's like I don't know any most of the other monsters. I mean, you sort of know it's a man in a suit, and sometimes you can kind of see the seams, and you're like, well, that doesn't really move. Mm-hmm. I I thought Hedder was a fantastic monster. Yeah. Yep. Well, and the transformation, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you being able like, to evolve to like, ooh, now he's a flying turtle, sort of, <laughs> or I was flying. Uh, what was I he's thinking? Like, like a, uh, what does he look like? Uh, like a disc? Not a disc. But... Like almost like a like maybe like a maybe a manta manta ray. Maybe. Yeah. 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 There's so many interesting things. There was one scene looking down the street and he is giant standing down at the end of the street. And yeah. the impression I got is like the cars on the road were just kind of being sucked in yep. underneath his yep. uh, flaps. Yeah. That yeah. was a terrific scene. Oh, great yeah. scene. And he does a little, I mean, at one part, there's pop, parts that like pop out of him. That yep. like, kind of like gremlins, if like he got wet and yeah. these little balls, you know, were popping off of him. Yeah, and his weapons, right? I mean, the oh my God. acid, you know, that he was spitting. Yeah. He, well, he like, slings yeah. sludge everywhere. Yeah, so you've got this really yeah. grimy, grungy monster that, to keep that tone lighter, right? It's like, in the midst of everything, well, let's show a cartoon and switch to the cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of like, and I know that they injected the flying Godzilla at the end because yeah. they need something lighter. I mean, right. It's a pretty, it is a dark film compared to what they were doing at that time. So let's, let's have Godzilla fly, you know, or let's throw in a cartoon or I think even the club sequence, you know, where we get the theme song reintroduced. Yeah. Oh, great scene. It's a, yeah. It's just at the moment when it, when it pops up, it's like, it's so (laughs) different than what the the rest of the tone of the film. It's like, Hey, we're going to go back to a grooving 1972 (laughs) club well and then the party gets rained on so the theme i want to go back to that so right can i address just the animation real quick yeah yeah you said a cartoon let's not give the wrong idea these are animations that deal with atomic bombs and availability of masks when there's a you know i mean these are children's cartoons this is true this is do you ever watch uh, cbs this morning they have a thing where there's a little animated sequence and it's always about like ecology and how clouds produce rain and all this very very much 
like that. And that's pretty decent animation. It wasn't. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it was very good. I mean, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't call it a cartoon because it wasn't SpongeBob popping up on the screen. <laughs> that would have been weird. That, that <laughs> well, that would have been. That's a whole nother movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that one, the underwater sequence when the, the dad is swimming and there's all the trash oh. around. What if you saw SpongeBob standing in the yeah. corner? Yeah. The opening title sequence. Now, we saw the AIP version tonight here at the mm-hmm. drive-in. So we get the Americanized right. version sung by Adrian Russ, who I read mm-hmm. as embarrassed by the fact that she sang this song until she realized that there was this cult following with this movie and, and especially now the AIP version, which back home for us in 2022 is actually now hard to find yeah. because we've gone with the tr- more traditional Japanese version, Godzilla versus Hedera, which really isn't much different, but it's that opening theme music is perhaps the biggest difference between the two versions of the film. I always think that the Japanese version just works so much better, but I appreciate the Americanized version because apparently they altered the lyrics to try to match the words to the singer's lips. Mm. I kind of caught that. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Is she really singing? You know, and then it's like, no, it's definitely, definitely dubbed, but they really did in a rare case, make an effort to get the words to match the lips. But there's something about the original version sung by uh, Keiko Mori that is just this weird early 70s funky yeah. James Bond-esque yep. title sequence. You know, it's like if James Bond was going to do an environmental film about pollution, that's the the title sequence that I would expect. You know, right, I was right. expecting the women to be floating in the background, you know, and twirling. And here comes James Bond with a gun. I don't know. It works for me, though. I get sucked in. It's like, that's kind of a catchy tune. It oh, works it for me. And I love like the James Bond thing. And I, the song comes up again in the disco. It comes yeah, up again yeah. at the end with a deep, somber yeah. voice. Yes. But you stop to think of the words. They're talking about no one left on earth. I know. You know it's like... <laughs> The it, subject matter is so horrible, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. Talking I, about can you imagine at a disco people dancing to that song when she's talking <laughs> yeah, about? Dancing. Yeah, we're all dead, and pollution's going to kill us. Yeah, man, get it. Let's get it on. It's like I believe anything in that period. Nothing was off limits. I feel like in that, and I know you guys turned me on to um, Joe Bob's um, last driving recently. He talked about this from about 1969, and he put it to about 76 that. You know, the traditional studio system is no longer, not just in the United States, but elsewhere. And how you have, basically, it was a time to be, to not just experiment, but like everything was on the table. Like whatever you wanted to do, you know, you could probably get away with it in that period of time. Um, so There's things that happened, yeah, in 70s movies that, I mean, I, they, they could happen today, but they would be right. so outside the realm of, of, of mainstream. I mean... Right. Think about a movie like The Baby. Being, oh, being, yes, <laughs> that was that was still kind of mainstream theater fare. Yep, with recognizable actors. You know, if that was to be made today, I mean, it would be a direct video thing that people would probably. And I don't. I'm not sure if that could get made today. I mean, never. I don't know. I turned a friend of mine onto it. I was like, "You got to see this movie because it's great." You know, it's 
don't watch it with your with anyone else because <laughs> they're gonna think you're you know. <laughs> but it's actually it's surprise that movie surprised me. It like kind of subverted my actually a little bit. It's actually got some really nice. I know I'm going on a tangent, but some nice twists and some good performances. And I really I was like when I finished, I'm like that actually wasn't bad. Twisted and kinky and all kinds of weirdness going on. It's just a tone. There's just something with. Just that period. And also the films have like, there's a certain, I don't know what, it's like a casualness to the, I'm thinking of, uh, and this has, you know, it's not, it's a very different movie, but movies like, uh, like Messiah of Evil, mm-hmm. this film, there's a bunch of other examples where it's like, there's a, I don't know, there's like a haze to, it's hard to explain, but it's like everyone's, I don't know if it's because of the performances or the material, just this tone is just, is just very different. And it just feels like you kind of, like even the performance, the actors are kind of slipping in, in and out of the movie. I'm not expressing this well, but it just, it just. I know what about, you're talking about. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of horror films from that time period where they were just, it was a lot of almost experimenting. It's like, you know what? Hey, we, we got an idea. Let's just see what we, where we, where this goes. And, you know, the budget is next to nothing. And, and right. Nowadays, there would be somebody somewhere will, would stop you from doing anything. <laughs> right, right. I say that though, and we're not too many years removed from the human centipede. So, oh, you know, yes. Imagine that pitch at the boardroom. You know, it's like, I've got an idea for a movie. Hang in there. Hear me out. Go with this, you know? <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Yeah. I did want to ask you guys that. So, the ecological theme, we've talked about that a lot. Right. Ecological. I mean, sometimes a little heavy handed. I mean, to show a, a clock floating in the water and then it chimes, you know, that's yep. like time's running like, out. You know, that's like it's on the nose. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think about the fact that Hedera wasn't created from all this? He's still from outer space. That kind of right. surprised me. I thought this was a creature created from the pollution, from the sludge. Right. He it almost gets lost in the shuffle. <laughs> I, mean, it, 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 I mean, it happens and then it, they really do kind of they really don't really go back to that too much. No, it's just that yeah. little uh, in the English dub. I mean, I, the English dub is the one I know the best, but I did watch a subtitle version uh, right be, uh, yesterday, actually. I do like in English dub the little science lesson. I mean, they do it in both, but I, for some reason I like hearing it in English. You know, they, that little Ken, you know, his father, Dr. Yano, t- telling Ken, there are meteorites and there are you know, other galaxies and clearly something, you know, uh, I don't know what they called it, a sludge meteor. That's not what he called it, but, you know, a ride from nebula so-and-so and, you know, that's it. That's pretty much it. So it is an extraterrestrial. Um, well, how do you I think guess. that affects the the theme and the, the point of it? Because I know he eats the exhaust and he grows yeah. to think that he wasn't really a product of all that. I don't know if it lessened right. the no. impact at yeah. all or. For me, it doesn't impact, you know, yeah. I mean, it's still the message, as you, as you point out, is very on the nose. Pollution is the problem. It's not this extra. And who knows if if this meteor had a you know land on Earth and there's no pollution, maybe hetero would just be a happy-go-lucky little blob, you know, uh, giving out candy to kids. I don't know, but you know, yeah, but I, no. I saw it as kind of like an interesting other side of the coin. It's like think of day the Earth stood still, right? The message is, look, we, we know that you're ready to blow yourselves up and we're going to give you a chance to turn this thing around. You know, yeah. we're watching you. And it's the impression of there's smarter, more intelligent people out there. They don't want us to, to harm ourselves. Mm-hmm. Then you have Hedera, who's like, bring it on. I'm hungry, you know, and he kind yeah. of, the whole scene where he's kind of standing over the pipes and the smoke is everywhere. I'm thinking... 
I don't know. My first thought was, man, that's a giant bong. And he's yep, just, yeah, yeah. Giant. I know it's hard to escape that image. That, yep. And he's just like, I'm the whole, I'm just laughing at that scene. It's like, he is getting high as you know what, you know. <laughs> yep, yep. And he's just thinking, bring it on, bring it yep, on. I want more. Yep. But I thought of that as like, it's that other part of the universe that's like, ah, no, nah, let them let them do what they want. You know, we're going to go and have a good good Saturday night. You know, it's like, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. But I do like how they speculated what was the planet like where he came from, and they imagined it was like a planet full of sludge and trash, and right. so that was right. kind of interesting. Yep, I love the way they decided to make him, you know, evolve in his different forms. You know, his tadpole form, and it comes on land, kind of almost like a described as a frog, and then a flying yep. form, but. He is gigantic by the end of the movie. And it's, he's like towering over, you know, Godzilla and with all his weapons, which were very cool. I thought, I thought it was very cool when his head would um, turn red and something would start to bulge out and there'd be a beam or something else. And they did a great job with what they had, you know, with the miniatures, you realize they couldn't do um, real detailed miniatures. You know, they probably knew there were limitations. So let's, you know, we'll shroud in like some fog and some darkness, but it, they're lit really nicely. I think just enough I think for what they had, they did really well. And they put some money, obviously, and some time in those suits. And the um, I mean, Godzilla suit was starting to wear out because that, that had been for a few films. So they would only use it for one more film. But but Hedera's um, different suits or designs are, they obviously put a lot of thought and a lot of care into those, I think. I would agree. Speaking of budget, that I wondered as a plot point, you know, it's the end of the world. Why do these kids go out into the bottom of Mount Fuji to party? <laughs> Let's sing. Let's dance. And uh, right. side note, I think it's really funny. There's like a group of older people that are just kind of watching from a distance, like, oh my God, what are they doing? But I was trying to figure out what, what did you guys think of this. They almost looked like they were infected or, or zombie-like in, in a way. Yeah. I, I just thought they were appalled at the younger generation and what they were doing. Yeah, it was kind of weird. Well, I've um, heard speculation that they're ghosts. They're not actually oh. living. Now I've read that. I don't know if that's what the screenwriters and Abano intended, but that some have speculated those are ghosts because they're so gaunt and they're not really moving and they're just yeah. kind of staring. Yeah, James interesting. Up. But yeah. I thought, well, that, you know, that has to be cheaper to get them out in the countryside where there's no miniatures, there's yep. no props. Yep. They can just do the countryside. I, I wondered if that budget had anything to do with that. Well, it would have been amazing. I have my Criterion book here, which I know you guys, I think you guys both have, but this does not happen in the movie. Nothing like this, but you guys have seen yep. this artwork from the Criterion yeah. book. and. That kind of detail and that kind of cityscape, city setting for a fight obviously doesn't happen uh, in the movie. Not really, at least. I think it still works. Richard, you want to tell us, a, there's some interesting things about the director. First question I have, though, is that Shiro Hondo is credited. And, you know, there's usually always scenes from another Godzilla movie. What scenes in this were from a previous Godzilla movie? Do you know? Because he's credited for previous footage. I didn't know if it was for previous. I didn't know that. I know what I had heard was uh, Tanaka, you know, producer, uh, wanted Honda to kind of look over mm-hmm. um, Bono's, um, what had he been, you know, working on. And I don't know if they were like dailies or something, but I didn't know they had prior scenes. So maybe, maybe Rich read something about that. Or, yeah, you know, well, I you... the same question, actually. I saw that and I'm, I was trying to think in the film, I'm like, you know, sometimes there's like a flashback sequence or something, so you can kind of clearly tell where right. they, I didn't catch that in this one is like what they potentially would have used. No, uh, and in fact, the, the scene where uh, 
it's the first, you know, in the seventies, they did really good work with like pyrotechnics. Oh man, they may not have had like a ton of money, but they did great things. I don't know how people did not get burned or seriously, you know, injured on that set. But, um, you know, when they blow up, when Hedder is near one of the industrial sectors and there's, you know, fireballs and there's, it's done really well. I know that shows up in later films. I think it's probably the next one, probably Godzilla versus Gigan and maybe some others, but going backwards. Yeah. I don't know. Actually, I, I don't know if they're former. I mean, if it says that, I guess it's true. But um, well, it's IMDb. You know, it's, it's IMDb. <laughs> everything's true there, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what about uh, Bonnaroo, Richard? <laughs> Yoshi Mitsu Bano, the director. So, this is his one and only Godzilla movie. A couple of us. Do what? I said, more is the pity. I wanted to see one more. Apparently, there are plans for a he sequel. He definitely but- had a, a very unique vision. So, here's one thing that. I kind of wondered in the in the fight sequence when he goes ahead and Godzilla pushes his hand through the stomach and kind of pulls out the balls. Like, so what are the balls supposed to be? That yeah. they were supposed to be his eyes. But obviously don't look anything like the eyes on, on Hedra, and that's budget. They ran out of money and they mm. couldn't do something that resembled the eyes. Now, apparently... Take this for whatever it's worth. You know, there was a, a a decision to make the eyes resemble a particular part of the female anatomy. I don't understand oh. the reason for that. I didn't see that. But now that that's been mentioned, I kind of do see it. And I'm glad I didn't know that going into <laughs> seeing this film or any of the other previous times. I don't, I'm not quite sure. I was reading some different things, trying to figure out why and what was the message beyond that. And I and I didn't really get the gist of that. He did have, you know, he had this unique vision and he wanted to do more Godzilla films. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, you mentioned uh, Tanaka, uh, Tomoyuki Tanaka, the producer of the Godzilla series. He apparently was hospitalized during the film's production. And so once he saw the finished product, yeah, he wasn't happy. He's right. like, what have you done to my Godzilla? Yeah. And so uh, apparently that was it for Bono. He wasn't going to do any more Godzilla films. Uh, Tanaka immediately says, we're going to do Godzilla versus Gigan as the next film. It's more traditional. I guess they, they wanted to listen to Bono's ideas, but every time they mm-hmm. kind of went to him, his ideas apparently got even farther out there than Smog Monster. And so that was kind of the end of that part of his contribution. However, when I saw listed in the credits, he's listed as executive producer on Godzilla from 2014, Godzilla King of Monsters 2019, and Godzilla versus Kong from last year. And I was puzzled because... Bono died in 2017 at the age of 86. Do these movies come out after? It's like, what's the deal? And it turns out that he was kind of the one that spearheaded the MonsterVerse. He he was the one that approached Legendary Pictures on behalf of Toho to have them start kind of a new Godzilla series because he was the one that kind of spearheaded the deal. He was listed as an executive producer. I don't know that he was, you know, probably not that involved in the day-to-day production, Mm -hmm. but especially if he was dead. Well, (laughs) well, he wasn't (laughs) for the first film. (laughs) This is true. 
Maybe but, he could time travel too. Who knows? I get me. He could. He could. But apparently, they've listed him at least on the last two films. I don't know yep. if they will do that in the next film, which is scheduled now for 2024. Uh, which I was excited to hear that recently that they've announced a new one. I think it's interesting that Smog Monsters is one film that's often kind of you know looked at as one of I mean, one of the most bizarre Godzilla films, one of the darker. And, you know, at the time, Bono didn't get a lot of love, but yet he's so instrumental now in us continuing to get Godzilla films currently and and beyond. He wrote this with Takeshi Kimura, who, man, his list of credits, Rodan, Mysterians, H-Man, Matango, Matango, talking about strange flicks. Strange movies, yeah. War of the Gargantuas, Destroy All Monsters, Gigan, Megalon. Yeah, long list of very impressive credits there. You know, I was looking at the cast, too, and I was surprised that the singer, Keiko Mori, who played Miki Fujiyama, this was her one and only film. For some reason, I would have expected that she would have seen other films. She was a singer, and I guess that was really the whole gist of why she got the part in this film, if I got that correctly. This was also the debut film for the character of Yukio, played by Toshio Shiba who did a, a, the Silver Mask TV series. I'm not familiar with that one. Hmm. Are you familiar with that, Jonathan? No, I don't think so. And in a pilot for the Mirror Man series, which is another one that I'm I'm not really familiar with. Oh. And just real quick on the other cast, well, I've, I've got you know the info here. The character, uh, we talked about the uh, young boy, Ken. There was Toshiyano, played by Toshi Kimura, who was his mother, Mm-hmm. Um, she's well known for one of the best samurai films, Three Outlaw Samurai from 16. Mm. The main actor, Dr. Toriyano, who spent most of the time lying on a bed in the yes. middle of the room, <laughs> played by Akira Yamanuchi. I didn't recognize any of the film credits, but he was pretty prolific at 106 film credits. Um, this was his one and only Godzilla film, and he had it fairly easy. He gets to go swimming, and then, you know, here's a blankie and lay in the. <laughs> And I couldn't quite understand that because <laughs> he's he's out and about at one point in the film. Yeah. And all of a sudden he's back in bed and the yeah. wife's like not letting him get up. And I'm like, well, he was just running down the street a second ago. But now he's like, you know, seemingly like, and he's almost like he's got his blankies curled up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comatose or, you know, what's going on? He's got some serious clout. I can say that. He's lying in bed. He's like, get the military on the phone. He's like, I need giant electrodes built I know. yesterday. <laughs> so yeah, I it's like, wow, I don't even have to get up from my blankie. I'm, I'm, I you know, know. Like, yeah, get that done. I need that done. You know, it's got serious clout. <laughs> and you got to love it's the kid that came up with the solution. I love that. I love yeah. that. He's like, dry him out. Come on. Let's, uh, oh, yeah. Let's I love it. I love it. The other thing, too, you didn't say about the director is he didn't direct a lot of films, but do you want to tell us about his, what he was assistant director on, Richard? Oh, yeah. Two classics from um, Kurosawa, The Hidden Fortress and Throne mm. of Blood. I have yes. seen Throne of Blood, and I really enjoyed that. Hidden Fortress, of course, is the film that a lot of people feel that elements of Star Wars mm. from The Hidden Fortress. To me, that implies like a level of artistry in his career that maybe he tried to apply to this film a little bit. He clearly wanted to take Godzilla in a different direction. And I mean, Mm -hmm. considering some of the other films from this era were certainly more 
geared towards a child audience. Mm -hmm. This one definitely was much more serious, much darker. So it would have been interesting had this been perhaps a bigger hit. And had he been given the opportunity to do a couple of other films, you wonder where the Godzilla franchise would have gone. I think Tanaka might have had heart failure because he was seeing this yeah. franchise go a different direction. But if they would have let you know Bono go ahead and do it, I wonder you know where where the franchise would have gone. Yeah, there was, there was something about. I remember reading that. I don't know if this is if this is true or not, but he had ideas of like almost a sequel to this and then taking place somewhere in Africa. And I don't know if that's exactly accurate, but that's what I've, I've read that several places. So that would have been very cool, intriguing. Um, but I guess we won't know. Any last words? It sounds like we all pretty much liked it. I loved it. I, I really, really enjoy this movie. It was Roger Ebert's favorite Godzilla movie. Yes, I don't know yes. that it's my favorite. I'd really have to stop and think about it, but I like it a lot. I was going to say, yeah, it's it's definitely not my favorite, but it's not my least favorite. What about you, Jonathan? Yeah, well, actually, and before uh, a final thoughts, there was just a couple other notes. I don't know if you guys realize, if you guys read this, maybe you did, Rich, in your, in your research, but Taroshi, um, I don't know if I'm saying his last name, uh, first name correctly, Nakano, or the, the director of special effects for this. He worked under Superai in the 60s and into the 70s, but he really, once Superai passed away in 70, he kind of became the full-fledged director of special effects. This might have been one of his first efforts. He passed away in the last couple of weeks, actually. Yeah, so I think it was 86. I think it'd be into June or early July. Again, great with those pyrotechnics, which you'd see. I know we talked about Mechagodzilla last year, but man, they knew how to light things on fire. <laughs> yeah, they did. Kind of mesmerizing. And also a, a connection to, I know you guys are both fans of the Bloodthirst Toho's Bloodthirsty trilogy. That um, Manabe, who did the score, also scored all three of those. So if you listen, if you go back and watch some of those films, you'll definitely hear some familiar notes, uh, very uh, distinctive, very different from the Fukube, but, you know, they work, you know, they work for those films. This sits pretty high up for me. If we're just talking the Showa films, you know, the 15 original Godzilla films, you know, this probably, if it doesn't sit in the top five, I would say it sits, at least sits in the top half for me, uh, for, you know, all the reasons, you know, we talked about yeah it just it's just too too unique and just too interesting for for me not to and i just it's it's fun even though like we said it's very dark so yeah i would put it in the top half and they go on and honestly they went back to basics in the next film they went to uh godzilla versus guy again they want to go back to you know some older formulas and we could argue if that worked or not for that that film's a lot of fun but a painful amount of stock footage in that film it took me out of it even as a when i first saw these films out seven or eight right i was like why are we watching scenes from godzilla versus you know why are we watching scenes from Gidra 3 and i know because i couldn't afford to shoot it but still i think it was like a criminal amount of stock footage in that one and then godzilla versus megalon has a good bit too but uh they're fun otherwise really fun i enjoy those movies a lot this at least was mostly original and same thing with the mecha godzilla films that closed out the series the ashoa series so you got to give it to them. But, and then one of the I want to, did you guys notice the Western elements in this? And I never thought as till I was watching the other night is um, how they circle each other. Godzilla and Hedera mm. are like, they're kind of sizing each other up and they're kind of moving almost in a circle. I felt like I was watching, um, you know, the um, one of the dollars trilogy films. Or yeah. Really I like thought it. of that, but yeah, yeah, it was, it felt like it never hit that me before, but for some reason I watched it. This feels like, 
this is like a Western between these two. So when you guys, if you, whenever you go back and revisit this, just watch those scenes again, I think. And also Godzilla walking away, you know, as the sun's setting and he's got his, his eyes all messed up and he's, <laughs> he's totally battered, sun setting, but it reminded me of like the hero riding Walk off. the sunset, yeah. Like in the sunsets, like Shane or, well, Shane's dead, I guess, but <laughs> Godzilla's not dead. You know, it had that feel. <laughs> he probably wishes he was, he really took a beating. But yeah, I just noticed those Western elements. I thought that was interesting. Hedera's design also from a distance kind of reminded me of, I know you guys talked about it recently in a recent episode um, of Quatermass 2. And when the full form of the alien monster in Quatermass 2 makes its, you know, yeah. giant, giant blob, it's like, yeah. that looks a little bit like Hedera, a little bit. Uh, so if you ever go back and watch that, you might get a, if you have Hedera in that. your brain, you might get that vibe. That's interesting because it, at a certain point, it reminded me kind of of the monster from I Married a Monster from Outer Space, just because oh. of like that tube-like thing that came down the middle of the face, yeah. which in turn reminds me sort of of Man-Thing, the Marvel oh. comic character. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Well, yep. Jonathan, thank you so much for adding your expertise and your joy for these films. That's been great. I have to ask you, are you sticking around for the next movie, The Thing with Two Heads? Oh, yes. I was so excited to hear you guys that you were going to. Yes, I am going to stick around for that. Um, Have you seen it before? I, oh, yes. Not okay. in many, many years. It's a play regularly on TV when I was a kid. I don't and I know it's wait. Let me get it. Is it Rosie Greer and Ray Milland? Yep. So, and I know uh, what's it? Ray Milland popped up in all kinds of crazy genre films later in his career. This is definitely one of them. So funny. If I remember correctly, it has campy elements. It's a fun wackadoo kind of movie, but I don't remember it well. I can picture them, but as far as the details, I can't remember. Um, so I'm very excited to um, tell your lovely ladies hello. I will. I definitely will. You know, again, this was great. I'm so glad I ran into you guys, and uh, always a pleasure. Yeah. And by the way, thank you for the feedback that you leave. That's great. We always appreciate when you leave feedback. So keep that up. Oh, I will. It's just, I know it's always so late. It's like, I, and I'm always behind in my homework, you know, it's just, <laughs> no. but it's like, well, it's funny that last message I left, I was, um, we were upstate visiting Yasmin's parents and, um, you know, Stella was kind of hanging on, you know, just wanted to be near dad a, a lot. So I was like, let me sneak out. I actually snuck out to the car with a cup of coffee and the coffee hadn't kicked in yet. So if my voice sounds muffled or subdued or I'm all over the place, it's uh, partially because of that. But yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love you know, connecting with you guys. And, you know, there's just, there's so many, so many things you guys do well. And I, and I, sometimes I, I feel bad because I don't, I'm not acknowledging all of it because you put a lot of work into this and it's, it's really great. It doesn't go unnoticed. And I know you're, you know, I heard Bill, Bill Mize, you know, recently, and I know he said something very similar, just appreciating all you do. It's just, it's just been, uh, been wonderful. And I just love just your enthusiasm, these genres. And, you know, someone has to do it because these films are, you know, they, we want them to, uh, you know, float away into obscurity. So we got to keep celebrating them. And, you yeah, know, you don't hear a lot of people talk about the thing with two heads. No, you don't. You <laughs> definitely don't. You definitely don't. And definitely pick up the, I like your idea. I'm not telling you, you know, how to run a show. But if you guys revisit a disaster, 1970s oh, disaster yeah. episode, I'd be all on board. Thank you, Jonathan. Yes. Uh, we will talk to you soon. See you soon. Just five minutes before showtime. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, may I help you? Oh, I'd like two of those, please. Hot dogs? Yes, sir. And three of those? 
and one of those, and five bars of these, and a cup of that nice hot liquid. Uh, coffee. Uh, coming right up. Oh, and two bags of those peculiar white puffy material. Uh, you mean our crunchy popcorn. Uh, uh, shall I wrap that for you, sir? Oh, that's all right. My saucer's just outside. <laughs> they come from miles to enjoy our intermission. Time folks. Enjoy the show. It seemed like a good idea at the time. The white bigot was dying, and the black soul brother needed time to prove his innocence. More power to you, brother. I want to transplant my head on a healthy body. I think I like to donate my body to science after all. So they transplanted the white head onto the black body. Who would have suspected that neither would care for the idea too much? What are you guys doing to me? Shut up. Where's the rest of you? We are joined together temporarily. Williams, stop this car immediately. Why don't you shut up? Hey, that's telling them, man. I should have known your kind stick together. Will you please stop this infernal machine? Oh, just shut up. Help! Shut up. You a doctor? So far, so good. Then how about you taking old happy face off of here? Are you shooting at us? Man, this car's a real dub. Could I have a cigarette? Oh, sure, honey. Are we smoking while I'm eating? the window and see if any more is coming. Ray Milland and Rosie Greer as The Thing with Two Heads. You get some sleep, baby. Why don't you stay here for a little while? It's no use, honey. Maybe when I get used to it. Now you know you got to go. It's a movie I've seen before. I believe you have too. And it's hard to get in a frame of mind for having to watch it again. I mentioned that in our Facebook group, but you know, it's Saturday night. We're at a drive-in. If we weren't here, what would we be doing, Richard? What would our other forms of entertainment be in 1972? Okay. In 1972, Saturday night, July 22nd, if we wanted to stay home, well, we didn't have a lot of options because cable TV wasn't around. You might have a UHF station, but you definitely had the big three, ABC, NBC, and CBS. It's July, so we're in rerun season. That's the way things used to work. But here are the options. You could turn to ABC, and they were playing a Western from 1968 called Day of the Evil Gun. 
Can't say that I've ever seen that. Can't say I've ever heard of it, <laughs> but that was our option on ABC. If we uh, tuned into NBC, one of the choices we had was Far From the Matting Crowd, a 1967 film, part two. Remember the days when the longer movies had to be split up in two parts over the course of two nights? Well, that was part two night. Uh, over at CBS, they had a couple of well-known sitcoms now, All in the Family and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. And then to wrap up the night, they had an episode of Mission Impossible, still going strong in 72. It was season six. I think there was maybe one more season left at Mission Impossible. I'm trying to remember. I think so. Definitely towards the end of the run. But uh, that was our options. We could stay home and and watch some reruns. Didn't necessarily wasn't a bad thing because that was probably your second time watching that. Or maybe you missed it the first time because we didn't have DVRs and no VHS tape. Now, if we wanted to go to the movies, the number one movie at the box office this weekend was a little film called The Godfather. Hmm. It was massive in 1972. It was the number one movie at the box office from March 22nd through August 23rd consecutively. Then it came back on September 6th through the 20th to hit number one again. Total of 26 weeks at number one. Shows you how much times have changed. Because mm. back then, movie was if it was a big hit, it would stay in the theater for months on end. Nowadays, Jurassic World Dominion opened up in the theaters just last month. It's already on streaming. That window of time has changed a lot. But Godfather 72, it was ruling the box office. We could stay home and maybe listen to American Top 40 with Casey Kasem. The top 10 songs, I thought this would be kind of different. Say if you remember any of these tunes. These are the top 10 songs from over the week ending July 22nd, 1972. So number 10, Schools Out by Alice Cooper. Number nine, Rocket Man by Elton John. Those two still get played with great regularity in radio. I have never heard the song at number eight. How Do You Do by Mouth and McNeil. I challenge anyone, if you've never heard that, I'm sure there's some 70s children out there. They, they probably know it. I grew up in the 70s, never heard of it. I'm a big music person. I did a YouTube search and... Uh, yeah, it's not a great song, but it was number eight back on July 22nd of 1972. Number seven, Where is the Love by Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway. Number six, a cheerful little ditty called Daddy, Don't You Walk So Fast by Wayne Newton. Very depressing. It's about a man who's leaving his wife because the marriage is dead. And as he's walking down the street, his little daughter comes running after him. Daddy, don't you walk so fast. Number five, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right by Luther Ingram. Number four, Brandy, you're a fine girl mm. by Looking Glass. Number three, Alone Again, Naturally, Naturally. <laughs> by Gilbert O'Sullivan. Number two, Too Late to Turn Back Now by Cornelius Brothers and Sister Rose. And uh, I challenge you to watch that video. That's that's a fro and a half going on there. 
with a nice little part and a little wave going on. And number one, Lean on Me by Bill Withers. Hmm. That was the top 10 by the week ending July 22nd, 1972. Keep on reaching for the stars. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of good stuff there, but I'm happy that we're going to watch a thing with two heads. You know, I am too. I guess this was, you know, part of a of a brief trend in the 70s. I guess how many two-headed movies are there? There may mm-hmm. only be two. The two-headed transplant. When I first saw this ad and think, hey, we got to go back to 1972. For some reason in my head, I thought it was the two-headed transplant. I, I'm gonna see a different two-headed movie, but no, au contraire, mon frère. It's the thing with two heads, the movie that I have seen. Wow. I don't even know where to start with that. Got any ideas? Well, I do. I'm going to use one of the taglines for the movie. They transplanted a white bigot's head on a soul <laughs> brother's body. That's all you that need That says to it know. all. Good night, everybody. That thank you. <laughs> Good night, and thank you for coming. We thank you for your, your patronage. What a flick. Man. Yeah, I do have to say, though, and this might surprise you. I had seen it before. I have written about it. I gave it three stars. I despised it. I dreaded watching it. This time, I kind of enjoyed it. It's a different flick, definitely. I don't hate it. I can't say that I hate it. I, I probably should, but I, I, I don't hate it because there's enough kind of craziness in this movie that just makes me it makes me scratch my head shake my head at times like the never-ending car chase sequence that must have been filmed at different times because the cars change they are changing makes and models and then you're seeing the same scene repeated and then it's the film Hmm. is flipped it's like oh that fooled me i didn't see that before (laughs) so let me tell you i did the math richard Now, let's say that we let's tell everyone we watched this on YouTube and it's a a slightly sped up version. I assume that's to avoid copyright warnings and notices or probably, although, you know, sometimes that's really obvious. It It wasn't too obvious. No, not really. No, not not this time. So a, a movie with a 91 minute running time came in at 79 minutes on YouTube, which may not have been a bad thing in that. I, I don't have to take you through all the steps of math, but I will say in the 79 minute version, 21 minutes were the car chase. So if you do the math and extend that to what if it had been a 91 minute movie, it would have been 24 minutes, which is 27% of the movie is a car chase. I'm going to say that's, that's almost a third of the movie. Yes. Almost. And you know, I think without this, this is really what drags the movie down for me. I mean, as wacky as it is, as maybe inappropriate, I don't know. It's just that that I cannot stand. You know, it's like the Smokey and the Bandit. All it's missing is Buford Justice of whatever county. And it just so many scenes of the reactions of the cops when things happen and jumping on their car and making comments it's just too much however an hour and two minutes i wrote okay i've had more than enough then something weird happened i started laughing because it was just (laughs) so freaking bad (laughs) yeah you know 
when you think of like, I, you know, I was trying to think, you know, looked at, at the director, Lee Frost, trying to figure like, well, so what other films did he do? Because I'm like, this film is so unique and, and interesting. Well, his list of credits is interesting. He does films like Love Camp 7, The Captives, Ride Hard, Ride Wild, Chain Gang Women, Chrome and Hot Leather, Surf Tide, Female Factory, The Black Gestapo, Dixie Dynamite. So yeah, his films were definitely unique. He definitely brought his very unique style in this film. I don't know if like if you're trying to sell this movie and and you say, well, you know what? I've got this idea for a 24-minute segment that's on a car chase that really doesn't have anything to do with the movie per se, but it's a lot of cool cars are going to get are going to get wrecked. Never would pass today. I mean, it's like what was the editor thinking? Yet it is this weird, bizarre sequence that makes you start laughing. And having seen it again, it's like, you know, I just, I knew it was coming. I was like, ah, here we go. Crazy to think that that's 24 minutes though, out of, out of the overall running time. I think how you accept this movie depends a lot on how you view it. And like, what I mean is it definitely leans heavily towards comedy slapstick, but it's not intelligent. Well, parts of it are intelligent enough to be like a spoof of horror films or science fiction. I mean, it starts out very serious, ridiculous concept, but not any more ridiculous than anything else, you know, and not even particularly funny. But then the minute they go on the search for a donor and we go down the prison halls of death row and you start hearing the funky music, (laughs) you know, it then sort of goes black exploitation. A little bit, yeah. But then the the slapstick rate is just like flat out comedy. So I think, I was going to say, depending on which of those you think this movie is, you might like it or dislike it. However, it shifts so often. I don't know that you can really put one category or genre on it. So it, no. it it's hard to take the way that it is. No, I, I agree. I, absolutely. I, I mean, even the, the concept, I mean, it's decent. I mean, it's a Twilight well, Zone type. And I think concept. we should you get you know, a racist and you force Yeah, let's to talk be about the, the plot real yeah. quick. I mean, I mean, kind of the, the premise. I mean, you have a rich white guy played by Ray Milland. Maxwell Kirshner is his character's name, and he's dying. And this crazy idea is that he's going to transplant his head onto another man's body because it worked with the gorilla, right? So why not? And it's that fact that he's racist and ends up through a series of, of events. The donor is a black man, Rosie Greer. And a big course, black man. <laughs> yes, yes. And so now it's this classic, he, he's, he's racist, but the scene where he's like laying and then he looks at his hand, you know, and he's like, wait, it's just some kind of joke. You know, and it's like, no, we had to, this is all we had and we had to go quickly and then it's, it, yeah, it's just the whole, you know, white versus black thing. Yeah, it fluctuates from being black exploitation to being the, obviously the, the mad scientist putting two heads on one body. That's, that's a little bit of horror. But then you've got slapstick. You've got, I, you know, the whole car chase scene is that Smokey and the Bandit kind of 
1970s car fetish films that were all the rage back then. So it's like they're appealing to like all these different audiences that would never normally come together, you know, at the dinner table, you know, it's like, hey, we're going to take that racist element, we're going to take the mad scientist element, a little bit of slapstick, a little bit of black exploitation. let's get a little bit of the car chase audience in, let's all come down together. And it's this weird smorgasbord. And the movie is just like this roller coaster ride, you know, depending on what scene you're watching is like, oh, now we're in the you know, the exploitation part. And then, oh, now we're back to the car chase scene. And now we're, you know, the car chase scene, which the gift that keeps on giving because <laughs> you're done with it, you think. And then, you know, you go on to another scene and they're like, no, the car chase scene is still going on. Well, and it's it's not just cars. There's a quite a big portion of that that's motorcycles. I didn't understand. So they, they're walking and they come a, a across this track and I don't know they're dirt bikes or motorcycles that are racing round and round. And so they take one because when somebody sees the two headed thing coming, they run, drop the bike, they get on it. That's just side note. So comical. I mean, you think, okay, seeing a two headed guy on a a bike, that's funny, but the third guy, Dr. Williams is is on there too behind him, you know, hold it on for dear life. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I couldn't figure out, like, did they then go off the track and the motorcycles were chasing them? Because it looked like they were still just going round and round and round the track. Yeah, it, it, it felt like they got off the track, but then they were still on the track. I felt like they were off the track, but then this whole other chase scene still going on. So they're not really on the track. Yeah. Then, yeah. And then I thought, well, maybe they're not even there with them. Maybe we're just seeing the race because we were so, you know, we really wanted to see who run the, won the race. I, uh, I kept trying to, it's like, why are we going back to this? But okay, we'll, we'll go back to it. And so director Lee Frost played one of the police sergeants and writer uh, Wes Bishop played one of the doctors. So it's kind of like, you know, everyone's kind of getting their little, you know, 15 seconds of fame in, in the movie. You know, was it just budgetary or was it just, you know, hey, I want to be in this movie and I'm, I'll play a police sergeant or I'll play this. Yeah. Some of these crazy cameos in this movie. You've got musician Jerry Butler from The Impressions plays a prison guard. Obviously, he must have known somebody because he's only done two things in his entire life on film. And the other one was back in 2008, something called Precious Time. He was a bailiff. I don't know. It's like, you know, well, he did so well as that prison guard back (laughs) in 72. Got a new part for you 30, 40 years later. In the the jail scene, there's a a hysterical condemned man, I think is how he's listed Mm -hmm. in the credits. And that's a very familiar face, William Smith, veteran character actor, 276 film credits, including the, the part of chemo towards the end of Hawaii Five O's run. He actually just died last year at the age of 88. Well-known character actor, usually played the, the bad guy because he just had that look about him. As we get up higher in the list, a lot of familiar faces. And here's your you know warning. There's some, there's some Star Trek connections. If Not going to find any Star Trek connections in the land of smog, but definitely... When you're dealing with two heads, it just screams Star Trek, right? And I even caught that one. I think there's another one that I didn't catch, but I caught the one and I'll let you tell you. But I'm sorry, why I was distracted is that I saw one of the trivia points is that this was Joan Prather's first movie. She only played one of the nurses. And by the way, 
if you ever watched David Letterman, they had like, how many team mascots can you get into a coffee shop or something, you know? And they just like yeah. kept pouring it. It's like, how many nurses can you get in a basement? <laughs> you know, they were coming out of the woodwork. And there was filling a the lot basement. of people in that basement. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I assume that that was her, but I was trying to figure out how her name is familiar, but how, like, what's her main thing that we would know her from? And I'm not sure I know. Oh, I do right off oh. the bat. So I watched Eight is Enough back oh, in the day. Oh, okay. And she was the one who married, <laughs> how do I know this stuff? Grant Goodfellow, I think was his name. Oh, yeah. No, Grant Goody, Grant Goody, <laughs> the older brother. But with horror genre, she's in The Devil's Reign. She's Tom okay. yeah. yeah, the wife who's at the beginning of the movie. I actually just watched The Devil's Reign the other night. I'm, I'm late and I'm like, you know, I should go to bed. Carla had gone to bed just a little before me. And I think I had finished watching something. And then I thought, okay, I'll go to Shutter and see what's on streaming. And Devil's Reign had just started. And it's like, sucks me in every time. I love the hell out of that movie. And Did you so, know there's a Star Trek reference in that? There might be <laughs> a, a, a thespian by the name of, you know, William Shatner. So but, who's yeah, the so, who's the one in this that's the big Star Trek reference? Well, there's two, actually. So we have, uh, they're both doctors. The white doctor, Dr. Philip Desmond, played by Roger Perry. He played Captain Christopher in the first season classic Trek episode, Tomorrow is Yesterday. He was in a lot of things. The Invaders, two episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, lots of TV, plus two movies we've talked about here before. Count Yorga Vampire and Return of Count Yorga, where he played two different doctors. Apparently, that was the thing that he did. He just died not too recently, 2018, at the age of 85. The other doctor, the black doctor, uh, and the only reason I'm making a point of the white and black is because the whole racist theme of, of, of this movie, because Don Marshall plays Dr. Fred Williams, and he was supposed to get he was supposed to be like a what part of the team or whatever. And as soon as Ray Milan's character sees him, sorry, can't have you because you're black. And he says, Oh no, no, you signed a contract. So you're going to fulfill your part of the deal. So Don Marshall, very familiar actor. For, again, if you've watched anything from the sixties or seventies, he was in Doc Tari. He played Dan Erickson in both seasons of land of the giants. First season Star Trek episode, the Galileo 7, he played Lieutenant Boma, the one who was really giving Spock a hard time. He also died not too long ago, uh, 2016 at the age of 80. Two big Trek references there from the first season of, of Star Trek, two familiar faces. I guess if you're our age, we watched a lot of 60s and 70s TV and movies growing up. We see these familiar faces that did a lot of that television work in that time. I would have recognized him not even from Star Trek, but from other things. So let's uh, address the elephant in the room. Or I'm sorry, were you done with that? No, that, yeah, I was done. No, go ahead. Okay. I'm terrible about these things, and I'm you know really afraid I'm going to say something I shouldn't. But how does this movie play today? You use the word racist, and I wouldn't, I don't know if that's, the character is racist. Character's racist, and, yes. But I don't really think, do you think the movie would offend people today? No, I mean, because, I mean, the Ray Milan's character is not a well-liked man. His racism, you know, is called out. 
unfortunately, we still have individuals like him today in 2022. Sad to say, 50 years later, we're still dealing with that. They're called out just as much today, well, more so today, really, than they were in 72. When you had a racist individual like this, we were just in that era where people like that were really starting to get called out. That was something that was still... I think relatively new, unfortunately. I mean, that started popping up in the 60s with Martin Luther King. And, you know, as the 70s were coming, there was more people standing up and saying, you know what, you're racist and I'm going to call you out on it. Sometimes you had characters like Archie Bunker, right, who was racist, but would have those moments where he would learn. You know, I mean, watching old All in the Family can be kind of harsh sometimes because Archie Bunker... It, you know, certainly was racist. But if you really kind of look at, at that character, Archie was, was a man who, who grew. He grew up in that era. And he, we would say, hey, we're going to excuse him because he grew up in that era. But when you watch some key episodes of Archie, Archie's racism would have become more and more diminished. There was the infamous episode where Sammy Davis Jr. kisses him, you know. This is a movie, this time period, early 70s, we were starting to see things evolve a little bit. So Ray Milan is definitely the villain of the piece, if you will, mostly because of his racist tendencies, not just towards Dr. Fred Williams, but of course, the character of Jack Moss, who is played by Rosie Greer. The man when you speak who, of Archie Bunker like evolving, there is almost, almost a redeeming moment in this. And that's towards the end when they're in the car and they've had some back and forth. And Ray Milan says, I don't understand you. Rosie Greer or the doctor, I can't remember which, says, that's because you're a bigot. I hate to put, you know, additional meaning into this than's there. But think about that. There's something there to that comment anything's bad. I mean, when you start calling people, you people and your kind, you know, and all that, that's offensive, but this doesn't go as far as the N word. I think if they had used that, that we probably couldn't be talking about this today. Yeah. Not using that word, I think was a good choice because yeah, it would take Ray Milan's character down and even he'd like take one step farther. I'm thankful that we didn't get that in this movie. I mentioned that line. There are a couple of lines in this, again, that they're just they're almost clever, almost, for example, uh, Rosie Greer, again, they're in the, well, they're in the car half the movie. So, you know, but anyway, Rosie calls Ray Milland a murderer. And this is at the point where Rosie is trying to get the doctor to take Ray's head back off of his body. And Ray Milland says, murderer, you're the one trying to cut off my head. And then he replies, well, that's different when you're talking about your own head. <laughs> like, that, yeah. I mean, in what world does that even make any sense? And then like when uh, they go, Rosie is an innocent man. He was on death row and he made a deal to get out. If he donated his body to science, he still was going to die in 30 days, but it wouldn't be as painful as the electric chair. So he's trying to prove his innocence in this short time that he has. And they go to his girlfriend's. She opens the door and he, it, they are there. And she just kind of deadpan looks at Rosie Greer and says, I know you don't like to answer questions, but how did that happen? (laughs) 
I mean, that, I don't know. That's kind of genuinely funny. It so, is. I mean, yeah. there are there any moments in it that you like think, okay, if it had maintained this tone, this would have been a, you know, a really funny, it'd be more clear that it's a comedy and I would have liked it more. Some of the dialogue, you know, some of the, the banter. As you're kind of on this ride, you're going up and down and twist and turn. It is a ride. Then you just kind of accept the fact that this movie's not going to stay with any particular theme for any long period of time. Constant shift of tone. Regardless of the tone, I think it does a really good job establishing the situation. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, we know everything about Ray Milan's character. We know he's a racist because he's been introduced to Dr. Williams. So the anticipation of, oh, what's he going to do when he wakes up and finds he's on Rosie Gear's body is enough to kind of generate some humor or some, oh, let's see what happens, some, you know, anticipation. Yeah, I mean, so I, I saw this movie. Did you see that with us when we saw the thing with two heads? I don't think from so. Gogo? Okay. But, you know, I maybe I did. That's why I couldn't find my notes or any, and that's why I don't own it and wondered how did I see it because it's not even on streaming. Well, yeah. I, think, I think you... I did, that's... Thank yes. you. I, so do you remember when... When that scene comes where, you know, he's basically telling Dr. Williams, you know, well, yeah, that's not going to happen because you're black. I remember the audience having that moment like, oh, you know, it's like you get so much to hear the audience. When you see the gorilla, you know, all of a sudden that that's a that's a moment where, OK, we're going to veer off to the left a little bit. By the way, Rick Baker. Yeah. Playing the gorilla. So and not bad. Uh, not a bad effect. And, no. and so let's talk about the other elephant in the room, and that is the special effects. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but they're really not bad in the close-ups, just when they're on the motorcycle and the styrofoam head of Ray Land is bobbing <laughs> next to Rosie Greer. That, But I really think the close-ups aren't bad. When you can tell it's a fake up close, they're pretty decent fakes. It's just those distant shots where it's... When we have the fake head, you know, when there's too much time spent on the fake head, that pulls you out of the moment. Because, you know, it's like, oh, okay, that's not... But the other scenes, you know, when it is Ray Milan, yeah, actually, there's a few times where I'm like, you know, how are they doing that? You yeah, know? but the operation, when they're moving his head, I mean, he opens his eyes, and unless that was, that was good. an animatronic head or something, which I doubt it was in 72, I mean, that's not bad. Not not bad for that time period. The fake head moments definitely, you know, are like, well, that, that's what it is. But cool. I've seen movies 10, 20 years later that still have the same problem. Terminator, I mean, classic moment where... I love that movie, that sequence. It's like, and I'm normally not a fan of like updating the special effects in films, but that is the one moment in that film that just pulls you out. You're like, oh, come on. It's like, that's a fake. And I think there's a moment, Aliens, maybe. I don't know. Is it, is it, what's his name? Bishop's head, maybe. No, that's mm, yeah. Alien. Yeah. I don't know. There's a scene in one of those movies where it's clearly bad special effects going on and there's a cursory attempt at maybe some realism i mean one the first time that they wake up and it's like kind of struggling or maybe he's already been up and they've restrained him or something the doctor checks the incision to make sure it's okay that was not needed but 
yeah, that's the first thing I would do because you're up moving around. You've got a freshly transplanted head. That thing could pop right off. <laughs> yeah. So that's where you have to suspend belief a little bit because it's like going through such a massive surgery. It's like, yeah, let's get up and let's walk that off. Okay. You know, <laughs> I don't um, know what else to say about it. I'm just surprised that I enjoyed well, it as much as I did this time. Yeah, you know, there's a few other little tidbits. So, yeah. uh, and we should mention, you know, Ray Milan. Okay, everybody oh. knows who Ray Milan is. Well accomplished actor, 175 film credits, and a lot of films in the genre. The Uninvited is a, you know, that's a bona fide classic. Dial M for Murder, again, another Hitchcocking classic. But he was also in Charlie Chan in London. Flash forward to this time period, he was actually pretty prolific. He was in Battlestar Galactica, uh, the original pilot movie, X, the man with X-ray eyes. I guess that goes back to the 60s. And wasn't he in, well, he was in Premature Burial, right? Wasn't yeah. that the, the Corman film? Wasn't he in Panic in the Year Zero? Yes, I'm waiting for you to say my favorite. Terror in the Wax Museum. No, can I say it? Can I say it? Uh, go ahead. <laughs> Frogs. Yes. I love frogs. You see him in a movie like this and you think, oh, here's a once great actor who, you know, is taking any job he can get to, to make money. I was trying to figure out, sometimes there's a point when that happens and it's very clear he goes from, you know, this to this. But it kind of was more of a transition for him. I mean, he was making some of those AIP thrillers. I think you'd consider his role in Love Story to be a somewhat serious, legitimate role. He still did both. As you look at the rest of the 70s, when he's doing stuff like Look What Happened to Rosemary's Baby, The Uncanny, even one of the last films he did, Sherlock Holmes and the Masks of Death, not a, a, a mainstream film, certainly, but he was still doing other stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's on Charlie's Angels, Love Boat. Oh, yeah, he was very, I, yeah. very busy at that last Fantasy ladder. Island. Yeah, he was everywhere. Rosie Greer is interesting because he didn't have a lot of acting, but he was one of those modern day, we would consider him like a modern day personality. He did Gabe Cooper on Daniel Boone towards the end of Daniel Boone's run after Ed Ames left the part of Mingo. They started bringing in some other people. And I think who was it? Jimmy Dean before he was making sausage. I think, you know, he was on there for a while. He played with the L.A. Rams in the 60s. So he was this big football star. He transitioned to making TV and movies. He was just a constant personality doing a lot of stuff. You came up with a, a fun little tidbit about him that I had forgot about. Yeah, uh, he was did needlepoint. And I don't know why this is what I remember about him, but I, I just remember distinctly. And at, at the time, you know, it's like, wow, not just a man doing needlepoint, but a big black man football player it like made it okay uh in <laughs> fact i mean i have dabbled in needlepoint myself and who knows that might be because of rosie greer it might be yeah and he's still with us in fact he just turned 90 on july 14th so a belated happy birthday to rosie greer i haven't seen him for a while so i don't know how well he's doing but he's still with us would this be the high point of his career? I don't know. It might be one of the things he was more well-known for. Last but not least, the, the character of his girlfriend, Lila. Is that Lila? Was that it? Yeah, Lila. I don't even remember her having a name. But Anyway, Chelsea Brown, the actress who played that part. So she's in The Return of Captain Invincible, 
which is this kind of bizarre Christopher Lee flick that just came out on Blu-ray from Severin on my wish list. She's probably best known for being one of the regulars on Laugh-In. She was one of the dancing girls, right? Okay. And they always popped up in some stuff. Laugh-In is not a show that really connects with a modern day audience. It was very much a product of it of its time. And they tried putting it in syndication in the 80s and it just didn't work because a lot of the humor, there's some funny segments. There is some, some a lot of classic routines. So she was a regular on that. She did some TV work, but she lived in Australia for several decades. Actually was kind of more well-known there. An odd kind of transition. We actually lost her just a few years ago. She died in 2017 at the age of 74 of pneumonia. To me, it felt almost like a made-for-TV movie in a way, just certain way certain elements came across. We get to the end of the movie. The good guy wins out. Spoiler alert, you know, Ray Milan's head <laughs> gets removed. Give he, me another body, please. How yeah, is the so, head talking? But anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's where's his vocal cords. You know, not looking too good for Ray Milan at this point. I don't know, though. The door was open for a sequel. We never got it. And then, of course, what the last scene is we have this kind of bizarre sequence where we've got Rosie Greer's character. He's with his girlfriend. And there's Dr. Fred Williams. And they're driving in the car. And they break out in a little, you know, dance dance routine, song routine, singing, Oh, Happy Day. (laughs) Just a bizarre ending to a, a flick that has been one heck of a roller coaster ride. Right there is maybe uh, points out an example of what we've been talking about all through this. Had the movie ended with Ray Milan's head and please get me another body, that would have potentially score scary horror-ish, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the fact that it ends the way it does says, oh no, 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 this is a comedy. This is, this you is know? a comedy. And yeah, yeah. It's not because that horror movie would end that way, right? Yes. You know, handing back, give me another hit. No, no, we're gonna end on oh happy day. <laughs> this movie is is out there. Oddly enough, not on streaming. I don't I couldn't find mm. it in any streaming service. But it is available on Blu-ray from Olive Films for I think about $20. And actually you can still find the Midnight Movies double feature DVD at a fairly good price. And yep, it's paired up with the two-headed transplant. You get two movies, four heads on one DVD for $15, which is actually a pretty good price. I don't think you need to see this on Blu-ray. If you can find the double feature DVD, that's probably the way to go. I'm actually a little bit tempted after this other viewing. What? I mean... You're going to get that the, Olive Films Blu-ray, aren't you? Yeah, well, but mostly because I wonder I wonder if there's any, you know, if there's bonus features. Because I would like to know more about this. I mean, I looked up Incredible Two-Headed Transplant. It was made, I think, the year before. Very similar special effects as far as the two-headed man, like with the one head, you know, slightly back because, you know, he's standing behind him and then that big foam like neck brace that's around. I've never so, seen that, but you you gave me a Blu-ray copy of it. I think you... you a have, Blu-ray? You gave me a Blu-ray of that, believe it or not. Huh. Um, I didn't know yeah, I had, ever had that. You're, you're going to have to prove that to me. I, well, I can go in the other room and get it uh, right well, now. Let's do that after not, the show. But. Nothing that I would have bought for myself. I mean, well, I mean, if it's a DVD, sure, I do that all the time. But I don't remember ever giving I away. Think a you, I think it was one of those cases where you bought something that you 
twice. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a sh- and, and where I benefit from those little mistakes when you do that. I was like, the that fact was the that I would have bought this twice just uh I and, yeah. Well, anyway, I haven't seen it yet, but it's 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 there on the shelf waiting. Okay, to be watched. all right, all right. What more can we say about the thing with two heads? <laughs> this has been the most unique and trippiest of double features I think we've ever done. Funky early 70s craziness. And I wanted to mention this earlier. To me, Godzilla was a little more 60s than 70s. And, and you know, that that's the way it is. Decades don't end the, the night that the no. date changes. And we called it a disco, but really that was 60s dancing. That was 60s that was, music. That was, yeah. Early at least 70s. What we perceive that. Yeah, if you think about it, early 70s, we think of automatically, well, 1970 hits, break out the bell bottoms and and the disco balls. No. Being 1972, though, early, this movie, The Thing With Two Heads, is definitely 70s in my mind. I mean, I don't really see much remnants of 60s. This, to me, is what I think of 70s, whereas Godzilla reminded me more of what I think of the 60s. And interesting that they came out, what, six months apart from each other. Interesting. Well, two different countries. Ray Milland and Rosie Greer did not go to a disco, so we don't know really. Wouldn't have that been a fun scene? Ray Milland and Rosie Greer at a disco. <laughs> hey, dancing with I would take that if they could guy. trim a few minutes of the chase. I, I would have taken that. Absolutely. Safe to say we recommend both films with their sheer, absolute bonkers craziness. Go in with whatever expectations you have and just know that you're not going to get your standard Godzilla fare. You're not going to get your standard two-headed monster fare. You're getting two of the most unique films and what a hell of a double feature it's made. Let's take another break and then I guess get in the car and head home. Sounds good. And now folks, it's time to say good night. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. I should have asked Jonathan, I was kind of curious what your first Godzilla movie is. Do you remember having your very first Godzilla experience? Well, let me ask you this question. When was the first time you saw Planet of the Vampires? Oh, my God. <laughs> Rhetorical question. It's coming out on Blu-ray on July 26th from Kino Lorber. That's a classic, and it's a beautiful film. That's the only date I found any genre films coming out is July 26th, and there are a couple of others. One called Satan's Children from 1975, and if you don't know what that is, it's coming out from AGFA, AGFA, and that should tell you the, the quality of film it's going to be. But I have to, you know, this is one of those I have to read you the description. I guess this is the director, Joe Wazicki. His ultra-mean Floridian exploitation movie is the type of sweaty 70s sleaze that feels right at home in the AGFA library, teeming <laughs> with Satanism, brutality, and not an ounce of good taste throughout its nine-minute runtime. Features a commentary with the one and only Elizabeth Purcell. If that's your cup of tea, you are in for a treat. Vinegar Syndrome is releasing Shriek of the Mutilated from 1974, a Bigfoot or a Yeti movie of some kind. Again, from Vinegar Syndrome, it kind of tells you it's probably a culty, but 
possibly some redeeming features. I don't know. I should have researched more of what that's about. I figured you were going to know. And then finally, I believe this is from Arrow Video, although I didn't note it, but this is another one of those Jalo sets. This is Jalo Essentials Black Edition. It includes three movies, Smile Before Death from 1972, The Weapon, The Hour, The Motive from 1972, and The Killer Reserved Nine Seats from 1974. I love the Jalo names, just their titles. I know. I was going to say, you got to love the titles. Let's do some birthdays and anniversaries. A little different approach this time for the birthdays. Got a couple themes going on. First is it's a Planet of the Apes heavy month for birthdays. Linda Harrison was born July 26, 1945. She played Nova in Planet of the Apes and Beneath Planet of the Apes, right? Yep. And then Natalie Trundy, born August 5th, 1940. She was in every Planet of the Apes sequel, but not the original movie. Playing multiple parts, too. Now, my final birthday, and this is going to spawn a little tirade. You know, we, we want to keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on and comment on social, you know, happenings. August 2nd, 1953, Butch Patrick, Eddie Munster. Uh, now, do you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> I do. I, I have do. never seen such an uproar as I have seen over the trailer for Rob Zombie's <laughs> The Munsters. I... I, I can't believe that, of all things, is creating such a controversy. And attempting to do a modern-day remake, you're already treading on sacred ground for some people. It's like, how dare you? And it's Rob Zombie. And Rob Zombie is polarizing for a lot of people. I've enjoyed some of his movies. Some of his movies, not so much. Some I haven't seen. When he said he was doing the Munsters, I knew, you know, he's approaching it from a fan perspective. He's going to do a homage. But I also knew, man, he's probably going to get screamed at by people because he'll do something. You know what? It's his movie. He can do whatever he wants. And this wasn't the first trailer, by the way. For me, I came out of it knowing people's heads were going to explode. I'm not judging the film because I haven't seen it. That is my point exactly. Now, to be fair, some have said, if the movie's as bad as the trailer, it's not going to be good. I can accept that. But I just don't remember the outpouring, the quantity. Where was this in 2012 when Brian Fuller produced Mockingbird Lane that had Jerry O'Connell as Herman Munster? Most people didn't even know that happened. And you know me, I don't usually get worked up about things like this. I'm always telling you, just ignore it. It's the internet. But you do. And that's usually because I don't see that stuff. So the point is, for some reason now, I'm seeing all of this, which to me indicates it is of a, such a massive quantity that I like can't even avoid it. And I just, I think that's unfortunate. People are judging it already. I think as you've told me in the past, people always judged stuff. They just didn't have their voice heard. There's too many people that will watch a trailer and say, they're not saying like, well, that doesn't look like it's for me. They're like, this is a horrible movie. I don't know. See the movie. Wait until it comes out. If you don't want to see it, it's cool. That's what the trailer is supposed to do. It's supposed to get you either excited or you're like, eh, not not for me. Don't judge a movie without seeing it. If you don't want to see it, that's cool. As you've told me, I give you your advice back to you. That's just, that has always existed. That part of the fan base has always been there. They just didn't have social media before to to try to make their point. 
So Why here's a question. So the Munsters was a mid 60s TV series, 1964. And I know it ran in reruns in perpetuity, but it strikes me as odd that like fans of the original Munsters are complaining. I don't think that's who's complaining. I think it's Rob Zombie fans are complaining that he's making a movie that looks like that. Okay, rant over. Sorry about that. See, we made it all the way to the end, and then you 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 just planted that seed, folks. I didn't do this. Jeff is to blame. Let's do a couple anniversaries, and normally we use this to pimp out our old episodes, but this month I did something different. I'm going to pimp out some other podcasts that we listen to. For example, on July 25th, 1980, Dressed to Kill came out, Brian De Palma. On a recent episode of Friday the 13th Horror Podcast, they talked about Dress to Kill. I love that podcast. Two guys out of Chicago. One of them has just moved to Ireland, but they've continued. It's a very fun, funny episode. They always do two movies with a theme, and, and their shtick, if you will, is real-life horror and then horror in the movie. August 1st, 1971, The Omega Man. And this is looking into the future. Our friend Bill, who was with us last month, on his podcast, Bill Watches Movies, is doing the Omega Man for an anniversary episode, his anniversary episode. If you haven't listened to Bill Watches Movies, maybe listen to a couple of them before this one comes out, but that should be a a good episode. And then finally, August 3rd, 1978, Piranha. And this was recently part of the discussion on the Discover the Horror podcast, This is a podcast with John Kitley from Kitley's Crypt and Horror Hound Magazine, Aaron Abishan and Damien, I don't remember his last name, the creator of Living Dead Dolls. The three of them get together. They always have a theme. It's usually about an hour. They don't ramble on and on as long as we do. Their topics are always interesting. Like their current episode is Paul Nashie. They're talking about three of the werewolf films. Uh, The one before that was remakes. So Piranha... Uh, was definitely was actually a very funny part of their conversation because of the nature of the remakes, especially the sequel of the remake. Those are three podcasts I highly recommend. And a shout out to the B Movie Cast coming up upon their fifth hundredth episode, which is a huge milestone episode, and and so I'm looking forward to celebrating 500 episodes. Tell us what's going on uh, if we are following you on your blogs or other projects outside of the podcast. KCCinephile.com is officially, hey, officially, officially dead. Uh, It's actually completely gone. That said, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com is alive and well. So anything monster related I've ever done was always on there anyway. Sadly, it's just the non-monster stuff. Uh, It kind of disappeared, but you never know. Like I said, a lot of great comments on Laurel and Hardy and Marx Brothers and Harold Lloyd. And I will try to find a way to bring those reviews back to life at some point down the road. If I'm doing something non-monster related, it's going to be a Kansas City Cinephile Presents. So I did an article in the last month on Tom Mix, who is a silent and early 1930s Western star. The Flash Gordon series still going strong. Every week, I'm posting a uh, new episode of the Interplanetary Adventures of Flash Gordon radio series from 1935, featuring the voice of Gail Gordon as Flash Gordon. And it it continues to throw me because that's Mr. Mooney from The Lucy Show. And so I hear Mr. Mooney as Flash Gordon. It it throws me off. 
And then every week throwing up new chapters of the Flash Gordon chapter serials, not the actual chapter serials themselves, but thoughts that Carl and I have on them. And so we are currently oh, we're closing in, oh, we're about the halfway mark on uh, Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars, the second chapter serial from 1938. I'm looking forward to what we're going to do here in August, which is the third Flash Gordon chapter serial, which is Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe, because I remember watching that a lot back in the day. That's the chapter serial that does the scrolling up that Star Wars did. Anyway, that's what's going on in my neck of the woods. What about you? What's going on at your blogs? I'm not sure of the timing on this. I've never really been a fan of Shark Week, but depending when this posts, it may be this week. If so, I won't have a review on Monday. So either, I think last week I will have posted a review of Tintorera, Killer Shark from 1977. I've never seen that. Yeah, it's one of the Jaws ripoffs, or I'm assuming that's what it is. And on Fridays, I'm still working through the 70s TV movies. I wanted to list a few that are coming up because there are some good ones. The Strange Possession of Mrs. Oliver stars Karen Black, directed by Gordon Hessler and written by Richard Matheson. I don't remember that one, but you have me at Karen Black. You're going to love this one. And I'm surprised it came up in a list of movies. I don't even know that it's longer than an hour, but it's McLeod meets Dracula. So remember Dennis Weaver, McLeod, there was an episode where I guess he met Dracula. (laughs) So that's going to be coming up. And then finally, Snow Beast, which is uh, probably another Yeti or Abominable Snowman movie. But the notable thing about that, written by Joseph Stefano, who, of course, wrote Psycho. Good movies coming up. We're in 1977. I think that's it for me. Let's give a shout out to DC Comics. Oh, uh, yeah. So you know, Metamorpho is winding down. I kind of have to figure out where to stop. We're in a point where he was a backup story in world's finest and then there's a little gap and then maybe he doesn't even appear again until crisis but he's going to be you know fading out here pretty quick and i'll have to be deciding what's coming next talk about wacky characters and setups you know reading some metamorpho comics during this episode would fit right in (laughs) tell everyone what we're doing next month we're Going back to the drive-in one more time. One more time. Hard to believe we're already towards the end of summer, which I'm totally fine with because it's supposed to be super hot here this week. And I'm like, is it fall yet? I'm like, (laughs) ready. We are going back to the summer of 1980. We are going to the Grand Island Twin Drive-In in Grand Island, Nebraska. And we are going to be seeing what was actually a common double feature. These films were paired up officially in 1980 uh, and sent not only to just drive-ins, but to movie theaters as well. John Carpenter's The Fog and Phantasm, which was from actually the previous year of 1979. Phantasm was given a, a second release and paired up with The Fog. And so kind of an interesting, you didn't have double features in movie theaters in that time period. So it was an interesting pairing, but they did like uh, a whole marketing campaign and stuff for it. I think we're the last ones here. As you know, I always like to wait for traffic to clear out before we go. So I'm going to fire up the car and we'll head back home. I'm going to tune in the radio to a song, another one from the movie. And actually, the thing with Two Heads has quite a soundtrack. 
I mean, it, it's got some, don't know if you'd say hits of the time, but definitely some vocal songs from the 70s, many of them with the sort of funk twang or I don't know how you would describe it. But we're going to listen to Bongo Rock by Incredible Bongo Band. And this is from their 1973 album, Bongo Rock. <laughs> See you all in a month. Stay safe and take care, everyone. Thank you.